You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. attributes the Taidor remote access Trojan to the Chinese government. Pegasus spyware is found deployed against churchmen and political opposition figures in Togo. China denounces the American smash-and-grab of TikTok. Ben Yellen looks at international law and attribution. Our guest is Amish Devatya from Baffle on misconfigured databases being attacked within just hours after coming online. And the BlackBot ransomware attack continues to affect new victims. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, has published a malware analysis report on Taidor, a remote access trojan that Chinese intelligence services have deployed against collection targets since 2008. The FBI and the Department of Defense concurred in the analysis, and U.S. Cyber Command has uploaded samples of Taidor's code to VirusTotal. It's been used against government agencies, corporations, and think tanks, mostly organizations with an interest in Taiwan. The FBI says it has high confidence that Chinese government actors are using malware variants in conjunction with proxy servers to maintain a presence on victim networks and to further network exploitation. Both FireEye and CrowdStrike have tracked Tidor for some time, with FireEye publishing a study in 2013 and CrowdStrike in 2014, so Tidor hasn't suddenly emerged from nowhere. But the news in this latest report is its formal, explicit attribution of the rat to the Chinese government, and the urgency with which the U.S. government urges organizations to apply against Tidor. NSO Group's Pegasus spyware is said by the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab to have been deployed against a Roman Catholic bishop and a priest who had advocated human rights reforms in the West African country of Togo, as well as against two members of the political opposition. Pegasus is believed to have been installed through a WhatsApp exploit. This is the most recent case in which NSO Group tools have been found in use by governments for domestic surveillance that appears to go beyond law enforcement or counterterrorism investigations. No government is flawless, of course, and an argument could be made that the sale of Pegasus to Togo is a legitimate case of lawful intercept technology being delivered to a legitimate customer. NSO Group has declined to comment. But Citizen Lab thinks that's a tough case to make. 
Togo is not the worst regime on the planet, but if your standard is, say, North Korea, you're probably missing the mark. Citizen Lab describes Togo as a flawed democracy ruled by a single family for 57 years with a long track record of human rights abuses, including reports that torture is routine in the country's prisons. And they go on to say that the four individuals targeted are clearly neither criminals nor terrorists by any international human rights-respecting standards. NSO Group emailed a statement to Vice. The vendor said, quote, As NSO has now stated on several occasions, due to strict contractual and legal confidentiality requirements, we cannot confirm or deny who our customers are. As we have also made clear before, we are not privy to who our authorized and verified sovereign government clients target using our technology, though they are contractually obliged to only do so against terrorists and criminals. End quote. Citizen Lab says it doesn't have conclusive evidence that the spyware was deployed by Togo's security forces, but it does think that the timing and target selection amount to a strong circumstantial case that it was. China Daily, an outlet for the Chinese Communist Party, has announced the party line on Microsoft's interest in buying TikTok's operations in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. The U.S. administration's smash-and-grab of TikTok will not be taken lying down, the paper's headline declared, although what the implied retaliation might be is left unspecified. It's a lot of shilly-shallying out of the art of the deal, the same stuff Beijing endured during trade negotiations with the U.S. But Forbes thinks this is more smoke-blowing than fire-breathing. TikTok isn't Huawei, and reading between the tough lines are avowals of determination to be measured and responsible, which suggests that China is signaling that it doesn't intend to retaliate against U.S. software shops. There are, after all, companies, and there are companies. And TikTok, while splashy, isn't Huawei. It has become all too routine for us to report on misconfigured databases being left open to the Internet. But how much time does it take for a misconfigured database to be discovered and exploited? Amish Devatya is co-founder and CEO at data-centric encryption firm Baffle, and he joins us with some findings. Cloud databases are certainly becoming a, a very important aspect of the value proposition that customers look for when they move to cloud. Databases tend to be a, a very big cost item for customers to deploy on-prem, so they look for those services very often when they go to cloud. Uh, you know, RDS is Amazon's uh, probably fastest growing service. So when that happens, uh, there's a couple of different things that uh, customers run into. The first one actually is just in the migration process itself. One of the things is uh, that is not very well known is when the migration happens, when the data goes from on-prem environments into cloud, it actually shows up in the clear in the cloud first. The second one has to do with just cloud native databases where you're just creating a database in cloud. There's some checks and balances there. Amazon makes sure that you have a certain password and um, you know make sure that you are uh, setting up some basic security. But um, as you know, most of the vulnerabilities that happen with hacks is user error. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, I. I... I suppose it's probably not too surprising these days that it doesn't take very much time for the bad guys to find a misconfigured database. 
Exactly. So one of the big issues that uh, we're running into is that the convenience of being able to actually set up these databases, um, you know, makes it really easy to make the mistake and keep it open, right? It's, it's a little problematic to put in lots of security controls than, which are difficult to implement. So what happens is, um, you know, operators tend to take shortcuts and that's predominantly one of the reasons why some of these things get hacked. This is the new norm, right? We are going to be using cloud environments for data storage and data analytics. And it's databases to start with, but eventually it's going to evolve into data lakes. And what is very important is that the data pipeline that you create as you put sensitive data in cloud has to be protected. So it is really about securing the data analytics pipeline. The storage could be databases, it could be data lakes, or it could be just straight object storage like S3. But the utility of the data improves as it moves into these various types of data stores. Um, and that's the future. I think um, data is the, is, the, is the new oil, right? Uh, everybody says you've got to have data in order to function. You just have to make sure that it does not become the new asbestos as well, right? <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, it's, yeah, make sure it's not radioactive, right? You get too much of it in, in one place and you reach critical mass and things go bad in a hurry. That is exactly what is happening, right? When you're fined 100 <laughs> to $750 per record by regulations like CCPA, it is by all means asbestos. That's Amish Devatya from Baffle. And finally, the effects of the BlackBaud ransomware incident continue to ripple through the educational, political, and not-for-profit sectors, affecting the sorts of businesses that have donors as opposed to customers. It's a significant example of third-party risk. In the U.S., a new set of universities are now known to have been affected. The universities of Texas and Oklahoma have both warned donors and alumni that their information may have been accessed by the attackers. And after a coy, slow reveal from California State University Northridge, EdScoop reports that the California State University system is now investigating the possibility that the BlackBot attackers successfully compromised all 23 institutions in the system. The California State University system is a public higher education institution distinct from its sister system, the University of California. There have been other victims in the United Kingdom, too, Third Sector reports that more than 30 British charities have been affected, and it's not just charities either. The Labour Party has disclosed that personal information about thousands of its donors was exposed in the incident. Labour had been using Razor's Edge, a fundraising and donor management solution from BlackBaud. BlackBaud has said that it believes its payment of ransom to the attackers has foreclosed the possibility that the exposed data would be abused or exploited. One can always hope but the customers affected by this third-party breach would do well to look to their mitigations, and the donors should keep a close eye on their accounts and identities. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, always great to have you back. Uh, we have an interesting article. Uh, this is from the Just Security website. Uh, and uh, this is, I think, the perfect thing to dig in with you on. It's, it's, a, it's, about, it's titled Cyber Attack Attribution and International Law. Um, I have to say I have a, a personal interest in this. Uh, the whole notion of attribution is fascinating to me is to – some people think it's really important. Some people don't. Um, can you take us through what they're getting at here in this article? Sure. So it's a fascinating article. I highly recommend all of the listeners uh, read it. It's really a, a good academic analysis of international law and the issue of uh, attribution. Um, so the impetus for this article is uh, very recently the U.S. Department of Justice unsealed an indictment accusing a couple of individuals linked to China, to the Chinese government, of uh, a decades-long campaign of hacking dissidents, human rights activists, and a variety of private sector uh, targets. I'm quoting the article here. Mm -hmm. uh, more recently, they've accused these same actors of trying to hack information on tests and vaccines related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this comes also in the wake of uh, a notice issued by the United States government in coordination with our allies in the UK and Canada about uh, Russian uh, cyber criminals trying to steal intellectual property related to COVID-19 vaccine development. Hmm. Uh, so at issue here is how to establish a just and uniform system of attribution that fits with international law. And her proposal is to require standards that states have to abide by to make attribution claims. You know, I think in the past, some of these attribution claims haven't been backed up by on-the-record data, you know, exactly what happened, why it happened, what the evidence is uh, that a particular state actor was behind a particular hack. Mm -hmm. um, we are getting better at being more precise in our indictments and our allegations. 
But the only way that we're going to be able to foster uh, international agreements and legitimacy to some of these attribution charges, in her view, is to require evidence-based, fact-based allegations um, that meet a, a certain elevated standards. It should you know, be something that's codified to the extent that anything can be codified in international law. So I think it's a, a really interesting and, and valuable proposal. Um, and you know, I think it gets the idea that if we are going to try and maintain our legitimacy in making accusations against other state actors, we should make sure that we're doing so based on specifically identifiable evidence and information. And I should point out, when you say her, we're speaking of uh, Kristen Eikenser. She's the the author of this article, uh, and she's the one uh, making these suggestions, putting out this proposal. Yeah, um, a very persuasive writer. I mean, I think one thing she pointed out that really stuck out to me is, you know, in the past, attributions have sort of been on a trust us basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for example, with the Sony hack, we said, we have evidence that it's North Korea. We don't want to give you too much information because that might divulge uh, some of their methods. It might uh, expose some of our own vulnerabilities. But I think the allegation doesn't carry the same weight in the international community if it's not backed up by uh, robust evidence. Um, And that's something that has been improving recently. Uh, We've seen it in some of the more recent prominent uh, indictments that we've discussed. But, uh, you know, it's something that's not well settled so far in international law. Uh, and it's something that we can we can strive for. A lot of this is governed by custom. You know, it's just what we've always done informally uh, with our allies. And you know, <laughs> custom because of the nature is, custom is not enjoying a whole lot of uh, <laughs> a whole lot of uh, backing at the moment, right? Internationally, no, it, it certainly is not. Yeah, I feel like we're in a, a period where we uh, love to violate all sorts of international customs, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but, now, could, could we see something like, I mean, an, inter, an international court to handle these things? And, you know, like I'm thinking of the Hague. The Hague. A Hague for, the, the, the uh, for Hague. attribution. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the regulating bodies are going to be set up by work that that's already happened. Um, so, you know, we do have multilateral agreements uh, in this area, Uh between us and and some of our allies. You know, there are UN groups. There's a UN group of governmental experts who have tried to uh, apply rules to cyberspace. Um, You know, I'm probably not the most foremost expert in international law, but I can say, you know, when you don't have those same types of institutions already set up, it's hard to develop these types of actionable standards. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, in a sense, it might be most useful for us to get the institutions working first before we start to, um, you know, come up with more of these substantive reforms. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's it's a very thought-provoking, well-written article. It's over on Just Security. It's titled Cyber Attack Attribution and in International Law, written by Kristen Eikenser. Uh, highly recommend it, so do check it out. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.